0: Thank you, Thomas, for leading us and the whole team. It's beautiful to be able to sing together, uh, to praise our God together, to gather, to rest from our work and seek Him together. And I uh, hope, hope you're today you know, present and engaged and excited. This is not a time where uh, you know, you're just sitting in your seats. I understand that you are seated, and this is a platform. Uh, but there's only one audience here today, and it's not you, and it's not me. It's, it's the Lord. And we want to make sure that uh, we, we understand that, and, and uh, even as, as we open up God's Word, we want to hear His voice as it's proclaimed. And that means for all of us, we're, on, we're deliberately on the edge of our seats, prayerfully desiring to hear and, 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 and even apply and to live out what He shares with us today. Um, and, and our gathering together is something we don't want to take for granted, and I, and I want to uh, encourage you to come to the congregational meeting. That'll be uh, on uh, next month on the 9th. Um, so the reason for that is, is because uh, we're going to be talking through different elements of our kind of master plan for our campus, and uh, if you've been with us for a time, you know we've been talking about that. We've been talking about ways that we can actually make our, our, our facility more accessible to more people, because we're, we're all about growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther. And a part of that is saying is, is welcoming people in, and, and the reality is that there are parts of our campus that, that kind of hinder Uh, people with mobility issues from joining us and being with us and so come on the on the 9th because uh, we're going to be updating you on on all these things and plus there'll be an opportunity for you to vote on something too Uh, the project that we've been looking at there's actually a prerequisite for that project Uh, in order for us to to expand this section of our campus here where i'm looking right now at the nursery wing right there in order for us to do that we need to do some work on the ed wing first because frankly while this work is being done we're going to need to have bathrooms that we can use. And those bathrooms in the education wing, they need to be updated and reconfigured in order to better serve our kids as well. And so we'll be bringing that uh, before the congregation to approve that as well. And you'll be hearing more information about that in the weeks ahead. But you don't want to miss that time because uh, we really want to be good stewards of what God's given us here. You realize that this two acres that we're on right now was, was purchased uh, back in the 60s for about $12,000? $12,000. That's a pretty good deal. Right, that's a pretty good deal. Praise God for that. And, and, and so we want to steward this well. And so a part of joining together on the ninth is a way for us to do that. And so we're we're looking forward to that. Hey, let me ask you a question. How well do you receive warnings? Like if someone warns you about something, are you someone going, "Oh man, I got I got to listen to that. I got to hear that." Or do you kind of tend to go, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." whatever. You know, there's, there's a, a guy I heard of. He was, he was in Australia, and uh, they're at the beach with his friend. Of course, he's visiting Australia. He's actually, you know, from California. But the waves looked good, and he wanted to surf. And his friend's like, whoa, time out. Don't you see the sign? It says sharks. And of course, the Californian looks at him and goes, I'll be fine. It's fine. He's like, do you realize and his friend says this to him, do you realize that 200 Australians get bit by a shark every year? And he's like, oh, okay. Ah, and he made a different decision. It was a wise decision. Uh, but you think about it, that's a, that's a crucial warning. I think other warnings, we, we get kind of numb to them because, I don't know, they're kind of silly. Uh, for example, on the outside of a Duraflame log, you'll see this warning, caution, risk of fire. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Or how about this one on the outside of a Batman costume? Warning, cape does not enable user to fly. (laughs) Mental note to self, right? Or here's one from a bottle of hair coloring. Do not use as an ice cream topping. Now, you kind of wonder, how did that one get on there? I'm thinking someone got a call. You know, hey, uh, here's... One that you can all relate to, I'm sure. The cardboard sunshield for your car. Do not drive with sunshield in place. <laughs> like, really? Okay, but these labels are there. And, and so I think part of it for us is, is we kind of see all these and we're like, please. You know, or, or maybe when you were growing up, let's face it, maybe you remember the days that you were a young adult. I certainly do. And my, my, my mom would warn me of something. You know, hey, that school assignment you've got to start it early, you know? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. of course, then I'm pulling like these crazy all-nighters trying to get it done. Like, why didn't I listen, right? Well, here's the thing. Some warnings are critical. Some are trivial. Sometimes we're apt to listen. Sometimes we're not. But the reality is when we get warnings from God, oh, we got to listen. When God gives us a warning— you realize God doesn't give empty threats. I heard that recently. God never threatens and the devil never warns. There's a difference. But God doesn't just utter empty threats. He, He warns us because he loves us. He warns his people because he is the sovereign, loving creator who has not only their best for them, but he's made them. And ultimately, Their best is always to walk with him, to know him, to love him. And that's what he did with the people of Israel. And sadly, the people of Israel turned away from him. Repeatedly. Over and over again. They would go after the gods of the nations. They would make idols for themselves. They would commit spiritual adultery. And that's why God commissioned the prophet Hosea to marry a woman who was an adulteress. Because he wanted Hosea's life to be a picture of, of God's life with his people. So Hosea did that. And we saw that in the very beginning of the book of Hosea, how how God, in his uh, way of depicting this unfaithfulness towards him, he had Hosea marry Gomer. And then as Gomer went through this process of being unfaithful, we find over and over again Hosea being faithful to his wife, so much so that by the time she finally ends up in the slave market, And his soul, he purchases her back, not to enslave her, but to love her and to free her and to call her yet again, to know what it is, to live faithfully as his wife. And then the rest of the book of Hosea is is God speaking through the prophet, saying to his people, spiritual adultery leads to death. I am your faithful God who has loved you since the day I called you out of the land of Egypt. Walk with me. Know me, And so we find ourselves today in the the middle of some of those warnings. And the warnings that are given to God's people here are warnings that we all need to hear as well. Because the truth is, spiritual adultery is not just something that happened centuries ago. It's a danger for all of us. Anytime anything in our lives tries to take the place of God in our hearts, whatever that may be, it could be something that's a good thing on the surface. It could be something blatantly evil or wrong. But whatever it would be, when it tries to take that place in our hearts, we then get pulled into committing spiritual adultery. And, and it's a dangerous place to be. And so in Hosea 12 and 13, we see several warnings of the dangers of, of, of this adultery. And specifically today he's going to address this idea of spiritual self-sufficiency, of being able for us to do it on our own. Um, It's it's something that that he warns them with many different pictures, many different images, um, many different ways of of trying to communicate to them, you cannot do it. And and why is it important for us to be rescued from self-sufficiency? Because... The idea of self-sufficiency in and of itself is a complete illusion. I mean, we want to think we have control over our lives, and all it takes is one little thing to spin into there to show us you are so not in control. You know, you you can think things are a certain way and then come to find out, what? It's not that way at all. I was reminded of that actually yesterday. Yesterday, um, someone I know celebrated a birthday yesterday. I'm not going to say who it was. He's getting a little older, a little worse for the wear. And so we found ourselves uh, heading out to, uh, to the city. And uh, Janet has, for a while, wanted to take me on. There's, there's a little ferry that goes from Oakland to the city, you know. So we took the ferry out, um, found the best empanadas I've ever had in my whole life, by the way, right there in this little marketplace there. Uh, that was really great. But then we were just kind of walking around, and we knew the time to get back for the ferry, but we weren't sure when we were going to try to make it, and there was like two slots, you know, like a 551-ish, and then the next one's at like 710 kind of a thing, and all of a sudden, it kind of became apparent, like, you know, we, we really want to make this certain one. Okay, well, let's go. Let's leave, right? We'll just go back the way we came. Well, we were, we were up kind of in that um, Salesforce park thing. I don't know if you've ever been there before. It's like a park, like that's, you know, four stories off the ground, it's kind of wild. I still don't know exactly what Salesforce does, by the way, but whatever it is, it must be a really big deal because there's a huge building in this park they've built. Okay, whatever. So we're walking around. We got to go. So we end up getting on the escalator and we're going down. But, you know, it's like we are not to take that elevator escalator. We can take this one. So we ended up, I think, I think we went up escalator, but we went down elevator. I, I still can't remember. We came out the bottom and things were not the way I remembered them at all. <laughs> like I, I wasn't sure. I don't know. Um, And so we start, you know, the girl said, walk one way. I'm like, that sounds good. And then Jan's like, hey, um, we want to go that way. And I want the men in the room to know in this moment, I've grown spiritually a lot. (laughs) You know, because I I received it. I said, take it. Let's go. (laughs) And so we took that direction. So then we're heading down Mission Street. And you can kind of see the gate, you know. You can kind of see the gate. and You can see the line of people heading in, and we're like, come on, come on, come on. Are we going to make it, right? And so we start running. We are running. And then we get to this light embarcadero's right there. There's no button. There's no button. <laughs> we ended up making it, folks. We literally, we ran. We ran. The door, the guy at the door was like, he, almost think like he's rooting for us. Like, come on, you can do it, you know? <laughs> I thought I was a slow motion, you know, like, you know, cha, 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 cha. you know, I'm gone, gone. We dive, the door closes. <laughs> but a little thing like that shows me something very clearly. I am a helpless human being, people. I can't control anything. I, I am not self-sufficient. I'm not even capable of getting to a ferry on time. You know, thankfully I have a wise wife, <laughs> but also thankfully, uh, you know, God worked that out. But, but the point would be, we think so often that things are going to go a certain way, a certain place, a certain time, a certain event, a certain goal, and when it doesn't happen, we're shocked, we're mad, we're angry, we're frustrated, we, we lack trust in God. Those things happen when in fact, all of that boils down to a bottom line sense of, I can do this myself. I'm the one who's going to make this happen. And so there were several ways in which Israel began trusting themselves. And there are several ways that we do the same thing. And so as, as we go over these, I, I, I trust that you're not going to put yourself in that mode of, oh, yeah, Israel really needed to work on that. <laughs> no. This is a mirror. You know, we're looking at us. Uh, I hope you also don't go into that mode of going, wow, I really wish this person were here right now. No. You're here right now. This is for us. We need to hear this. I need to hear this. And so there's several different ways that that self-sufficiency is is an enemy for us. First is self-sufficiency deceives us. It deceives us. And it deceives us in several ways. One way we find here is it deceives us to trust in self-made wealth. And if you go ahead and look at chapter 12 there and, and look at, uh, verses seven and following. Notice what, what he says here. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim, which is referring to Israel, said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. And then notice verse nine. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again. As in the days of the appointed festival, what's he saying here? Well well you 've got this idea of the merchant in verse seven, and really, Canaanites, the nations around them, they were known as merchants. as a matter of fact, that name was synonymous with being a merchant, was, was synonymous with being a merchant back in that day and and though Israel denies it in this passage, she had actually become filled with greed, and she was happy to gain things by dishonest means and so there's kind of this way in which God 's confronting them he 's saying. Well, why did I redeem you? Did I redeem you just so that you could become a bunch of Canaanites? And he's saying, no, I didn't. And then, in fact, when you relive the exodus each year with this this festival, of tabernacles. Realize this in the verse 9. Notice it says this. I will make you live in tents again. He's saying you're, you're the ones that, that have these, this a festival, as in the days of the appointed festival, he says there. You have this every year where you commemorate this by having tents. And he's saying, look, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one that's provided for you all these things. I'm the one that's given you the means you even have in order to get these resources and to make money and to actually be a, you know, somewhat profitable in business. So what I'm going to do now is this tent celebration that you're having, that's where you're heading again. I'm gonna have you go back to that. Because you're the one that has placed yourself and your self-made wealth above me. And so the festival of tabernacles, they would celebrate that. And he's saying, that's not just something you're looking back at. Because of your forgetting me and living in self-sufficiency, you are now heading back living in tents. Verse 11 is something that is very fascinating because he talks about, he says there about this field, that there's going to be stone heaps in the field. The idea is you're building these altars all over the place to these pagan gods. Well, get this. Your fields now are going to be covered with stones, which is the, the way of saying your fields are not going to be profitable anymore. Uh, piled stones are going to be all over the place. And, and that's really what Gilgal means. So when he says verse 11, the second portion, in Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. And so he's, he's doing a, a play on words there. But self-sufficiency doesn't just uh, cause us to, to trust in self-made wealth. It also uh, causes us to trust in self-made religion. And we find that in the first portion of verse 13. Uh, he, he talks about Baal again. They're worshiping this false god, the calves that they've made. These out of, out of precious metals. And, and, and look at what he says. He says, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they make sin more and more. They make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they'll be like the morning cloud, like the dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. So in that section, we find Hosea again confronting this, this self-sufficiency, but now it's self-sufficiency not so much for wealth that you've made yourself, but now it's a religion that you've made yourself. And, and there's... an an interesting twist here because it's almost like in verse 2, notice how he says, idols skillfully made from silver. There's like this moment of, these are really skillful craftspeople and they can actually make something that's beautiful and intricate and it's hard, it's not easy and they, and they put this thing together and yet then they do something totally absurd. They start kissing this thing. So you've got great skill and wisdom on the one hand and then ironically, what do they do? They just embrace foolishness by, by worshiping this thing that they made. And so they 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 have this way in which they're 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 employing great talent and yet they start kissing an inanimate object. And so what happens they become like a morning cloud. That's a cloud that doesn't last. It's short-lived. A morning cloud, you you've seen it before. You know you look out and you see the fog in the morning and then it burns off by midday. It's gone. There's no trace of it. And that's what self-made religion does. Self-made religion comes in all kinds of forms today. You know, so sometimes it's, it's uh, the, the, the person who's, who's involved in some sort of, let's say it's a cult, maybe they're worshiping along the lines of a Jehovah's Witness, and they kind of have to go out and do all these different activities to prove that they're worthy of God's acceptance and hope that they can make it into the 144,000 because they take that line out of Revelation and twist it. Uh, and so they're going door to door trying to, trying to push that. Other other people have a self-made religion that really involves nothing more than worshiping themselves. I, I've had that happen before. I've been at coffee with a friend. You know, we were both in a, in a jazz combo together. And, and maybe I've, you've heard this uh, conversation before. But I remember sitting there and, and we were talking and I, I was just sitting in the coffee shop. He happened to walk in and we're, we're talking. He, he, we're talking and he says basically, you know, hey, Chris, I'm, I said, you know, You're, people are running away from God. And he goes, I'm not running away from God. And he literally said this. He goes, I am God. And I was kind of backing my chair up from the table at that point. Like, Wow. And, you know, and as we talked more and more, it was just so, so apparent. He, he had constructed this whole thing, and he was kind of a practitioner of this sort of self-enlightenment thing. And, and again, so destructive. You know, it happens in, in, in actual uh, Christian circles as well. There are people that have self made religion where, where they think if I go to church, if I go to this Bible study, if I do that, then God's going to accept me. And that's not the gospel. The gospel says this we come to God without anything to commend ourselves, including religious activities. No, we are saved how? By grace. Jesus gives himself for us on the cross. He dies for our sin. And we receive it by f- him by faith. We receive salvation by faith. And then as a result of that, we are accepted by God. I mean, he said on the cross, it is finished. It's done. That's the gospel. Now, what happens as a byproduct of that? And after that, well, we then desire to live in a different way. There's change that happens. But our hope is dependent upon his grace, not our obedience. Obedience comes as a result of what he's done, but it's not our place of hope. And so self-made religion can come in all kinds of different forms. The point is, all self-made religion is a form of self-sufficiency, so whether it's the religious person saying I'm going to be self-sufficient in my religiousness or the, the person who runs away from any form of what they would perceive as God and they're going to just trust themselves. They're going to, not everybody's going to say I am God, but essentially that's what happens when people walk away from the living God. We had an interesting conversation yesterday on that ferry on the way home because some folks were, uh, they were from a different Concord the one in Boston, you've heard of it before? Yeah. And so we were talking and they were noticing all the homelessness that they've seen around us and they're like, what, what's the deal with that? What's going on? And as we were talking, eventually we, we just kind of got to the point of, hey, you know what? Really, ultimately this is a spiritual problem. That's what this is. And, and uh, as we were talking, we just said, you know, the reality is God made us to know him. Jesus says eternal life is to know him. And, and so ultimately, all the things we're seeing in our broken world, and it is broken and it is messed up, it is because people are turning away from him in, in, the, in the efforts to be self-sufficient. They didn't completely walk away from us. We actually talked for a bit. It was actually kind of a good conversation. But the reality is, is we make up our own things so often when it comes to pursuing God. And we end up pursuing someone other than God when we do that. Uh, another thing that uh, self-sufficiency will, will do in terms of deceiving, it'll deceive us to trust self-made wealth. It'll deceive us to trust a self-made religion. But thirdly, it'll also deceive us to trust a self-appointed kings. And, and, and really, that harkens back in chapter 13, verse 9, if you'll look at that briefly. He says, It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king, that he may save you in all your cities? He's referring back to that time in Israel's history when Saul was there. And as King Saul reigned, the country, you know, the entire nation was falling apart. Why? Because, again, people wanted to be like the nations, Israel wanted to be like the nations around them. And we want a king that we can see. We want a king who's tall and, and engaging and looks handsome and, and just like the nation's kings. And he will rescue us. He will save us. They literally said that to God. And now God's going, okay, you've got your own religion. You've got your own kings. You've got your own wealth. And what do you have? Nothing. seems to me like every time we have our own political solution for things, one thing we can be sure of, we don't really have a solution, do we? So he he calls them to turn from that. But self-sufficiency, it doesn't just deceive us. Here's another thing that it does. Self-sufficiency delays us as well. We find that in chapter 13, verse 12. He says this, The iniquity of Ephraim is real. Is bound up, his sin is stored up, the pains of childbirth come upon him, he is not a wise son, for it is not the time he should delay at the opening of the womb. And you're going, what is he talking about? And even I was getting together with some, some friends earlier this week, like, what is he talking about? Um, this is a very fascinating picture here. Um, there's something being delayed birth. That's the picture. And, and of course, the normal process of birth, there's, there's pain in that. There's the, the rhythm of contraction that would cause the child to, to, to be born. And, and in this case, what's happening here is the picture is a child in the birth canal saying, I don't want to be born. I'm stopping. Now, I realize I got to be really careful here because I have never done this before. So to all you ladies here who have done this, I do not want to make light of the situation. Okay. But I can imagine, they didn't have epidurals back then, people, okay? They didn't have them. That would be hard, okay? I I, I still remember uh, with our first, when Grant was born, I was in there with Janet. And um, we had uh, our our doctor, and of course, we had the the person who was to administer the epidural. And she was from the South. And so she she would say, okay, sweet pea, I want you to lay on your side now. All right. And the nurse was there adjusting the, the monitor. There was a monitor on there too. And I'm just standing there. I'm just kind of like, this is my first, I've never done this before. I was the first kid, right? I'm just like. And, uh, <laughs> and so the needle comes out. So Janet's facing away. The needle comes out and it's like, you know, I'm going, what? And, and then, you know, there's, there's kind of like she comes up to, to her back, and the nurse is on the other side. And as she's about to go in, the nurse jostles Janet a little bit because she's adjusting the monitor. And she didn't say a word, but she, I've never seen laser beam eyes like this before in my life. Like, she just looked at her like, you're going to die, you know? And, and the nurse is like, and then she's like, all right, sweet pea, one second now, we're going to, you know? And she kind of does her thing. Um, once that epidural was in, Grant was born, man. Like, it wasn't that fast, but it was a lot faster, Sorry, honey, it wasn't that fast. Okay. <laughs> so but but the question, so what is the picture here exactly? The, the, it's really a child who will not come out. It's a child who will not come out. And there is a really the picture here of repentance. This is this is Israel refusing to repent, being a stubborn baby in the womb, will not will not be born. And and God's saying, don't do it. Your stubbornness is endangering your life. By the way, that endangers the life of both the mother and the child in this picture. And yet there's joy and relief in a rapid birth. So, so self-sufficiency will do that to us. Well, it'll delay us. It'll cause us to stop. It'll cause us to not move forward, especially with repentance. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's a recent survey of Gen Z and millennial car owners that showed that it takes an average of eight warning lights for them to schedule vehicle maintenance. <laughs> wow. However, one in four tend to disregard even those and just keep driving. They'll drive with low, low tire pressure. They'll drive with a, an oil light that's on. And the idea is like, yeah, maybe I'll get to it. I'll get there. But I'm just going to wait. Just going to wait. And uh, I know I've had discussions with my daughters about that. Don't wait. You see the light. Take, take the, heed the warning. Um, but it's not seen as being that urgent or that big of a deal. Or there's just a, I don't want to deal with that right now. There's a stubbornness, perhaps. But here's the thing. With God's warnings to us, we have to take them in and realize that uh, those delays from self-sufficiency, I can handle this, I can do it, will bring very destructive results in our lives. So self-sufficiency, it doesn't just deceive deceive and delay. Lastly, it it destroys. It will destroy. The the way in which this passage opens and closes is fascinating. Look at uh, Hosea 12, 1. So that's where we started. The very first portion of of chapter 12. Notice it says, Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. There's a Feeding on the wind and a pursuing of the east wind. You'll remember maybe from Ecclesiastes. What does chasing after the wind do for you? Nothing. What does trying to live life apart from God do for you? Nothing. Have you ever tried to catch the wind before? You can't. Have you ever fed on the wind before? If you're hungry, you can't. It doesn't do anything. So there's this pursuing of the east wind. That, That really is the picture of Assyria. There was an alliance with Assyria that they were trying to make. They thought politically, again, they could solve this thing. Now flip over to chapter 13, and look at verse 15. Notice this. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come. The wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Wow. Judgment is coming. That's what he's saying. So this east wind that you wanted, that east wind to Syria is now coming for you. You don't have to chase after to seek it. It's now gonna be blowing in your direction and God's judgment is coming. The very thing you wanted, the very thing you desired, Israel, the very thing you were chasing after, now I'm gonna give that to you and it will destroy you. So when Israel attempted to make alliances with heathen neighbors, and they sought help there instead of seeking help from God, God said, fine, their help is what you'll get and their help is destruction. And it gets, it gets even more and more graphic. Look at verse 16. Samaria will be held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. And you look at that and you go, whoa, that's harsh, And yet, do you realize something? That's exactly what the Assyrian army would do. The Assyrians were known for vicious, devastating cruelty. And so again, God's saying that east wind you were longing for, that east wind is now coming for you. And the very thing that you long for is the very thing you will get. You want the nations, you want devotion to them and their gods. You want what their idols could supposedly provide. And now you see what happens. They will destroy you. And that's the way idolatry works. That's the way idolatry always works. It will always destroy you. That's the way it works today. Whenever we put an idol up in our hearts to worship it, there are times God will allow us to have the very thing that we're seeking and then we will find that those idols are the most vicious and cruel masters of all. They will dash you to pieces. They will rip you to shreds. God alone is your salvation. He's he's alone is your loving creator. He's he's your loving ruler. And you're gonna find peace and satisfaction and fullness and salvation nowhere else. So when we turn to an idol, how, how does this work today? There's so many examples that we could look at from everyday life. You know, perhaps you're at work and that woman seems so alluring. She, she pays, you're a married guy, let's say, and maybe she's paying more attention to you than you feel like your wife does. Maybe she's more affirming, more, more encouraging to you than your spouse. So what are you gonna do with that temptation? You know, just this past week, I, I was actually talking with um, a fellow pastor and one of the leaders at his church had, had a really difficult marriage and this guy became enamored with a woman. He began having an affair with her for about eight months. And eventually, he decided, you know what? I got to break this off. I got to stop this. However, she had other ideas. So what did she do? She called his pastor. Now, this guy's ministry is ripped up. His family's been torn to pieces. His life is blown up, all because he had to bow down To the idol of, I don't know, maybe it was affirmation, maybe it was the idol of lust, maybe it was both. Either way, his life's ripped to shreds. The thing is, idols will destroy you. And you know what? They don't always destroy you right away. Maybe, maybe it's a drug addiction. Maybe there's some prescription drug things going on in your life. Maybe, maybe it's some things you're looking at online that you think you're going to be able to just sort of get away with. Maybe, maybe you think you're dabbling around the edge of sin, thinking, well, I'm not really in it, but the reality is, is with sin there is no edge. You want to gain a hidden advantage maybe in some business dealing that no one's going to know about? The reality is, though, that hole that you're digging, you're digging it for yourself. You think no one's going to find out. Thankfully, the Lord does not leave us here. As we all face temptations, as idols in our life and world just clamor for us to worship them, we find this. There's a way out. Especially that idol of self-sufficiency. That idol of, hey, I can do this on my own. We can't escape it. There is hope. And that is really by repentance. There's an opportunity to repent. Look at chapter 12 again. Verses 2 through 6. You know what, you know what God does? He brings a picture from the history of Israel. He brings a picture of the life of Jacob. Maybe you remember that. Jacob, the, the guy who uh, was known as, as the heel grabber. That's what his name actually means. The one who was uh, born to Isaac. The one who, he, he ended up being a, what would you call it? He was someone who with his brother, there was a contest for the birthright. Maybe you recall that. Well, here's how God describes it. Chapter 12, verse 2. The Lord has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. There's a reference to Jacob. And he kind of recounts it. Look at verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, The Lord is his name. What's he talking about there? Well, well, Jacob was that that heel grabber. He was the one who was born second. And yet, through his life, we see from, from the early portion of Genesis 31 and following, he ends up growing. He ends up becoming a different person. And so, we find that there's a spiritual progress in his life. Um. He doesn't begin that way. He starts off as a deceiver, and, and, and then over time, he learns integrity. He, he really learns that self-sufficiency doesn't work. Uh, he tried that. He tried that in every way he could. And then Jacob's progress was one that we see him forsaking self-sufficiency and coming to the end of himself and then trusting God. And all of that really came to the place of, of, of being clear with the night he wrestled with God. Uh, And there's that that moment at Penel when he uh, wrestled with God and he became more and more aware of his helplessness and his hopeless state. And you look at that account, uh, and and we can't go there, but I would encourage you to read about it. Um, He he wrestles with God and you think, wait, did, did Jacob defeat God in a wrestling match? Like, is that possible? And you're like, no, no, he didn't. He wrestled with God in that he had been self-sufficient his whole life. He had been doing his own thing his own way. He'd been the deceiver. He'd been the heel grabber. He'd been manipulating things. And eventually, he comes to himself, he comes to wrestle with God and finds that, no, I'm helpless. I, I can't do it. And so, in essence, the wrestling match was him clinging to God, holding on to God for dear life, weeping. And, and, and God, in his mercy, answered him. Uh, I think think we've got a really good picture of it. J.I. Packer puts it really well in his book, Knowing God. And here's what he says. The nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him and wrought in him the spirit of submission and self-distrust that he had desired God's blessing so much that he clung to God through all this painful humbling till he came low enough for God to raise him up by speaking peace to him and assuring him that he need not fear. And that's why, if you look at chapter 12, verse 6, after giving this beautiful account of Jacob, he says, therefore, return to your God. Come back. Do what Jacob did. Turn to him. And so we can be very grateful that Self-sufficiency can be escaped by repentance. But we wouldn't be doing this passage justice if we didn't see something else. Here's the beautiful truth that the Bible gives us. We gotta realize this. God overwhelms our self-sufficiency. Even as we wrestle with self-sufficiency, we struggle with it, we see the ways in which it affects our lives, God overwhelms it. He did it with Jacob. He does it with us too, even more so. He does it with grace and with truth. And how does he do it ultimately? He does it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what it says here in chapter 13, verse 14. This is gonna sound familiar to some of you. He says this, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your thorns? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. If you're at all familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul, you've probably heard that phrase before. Because Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Paul's talking about the resurrection, and he's quoting this section of Hosea. And he's talking about how the perishable will put on the imperishable how the body that dies is is sown into the ground but it's raised in Jesus into incorruptible life everlasting in him And he says this but when the perishable in verse 54 will have put on the imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality describing the resurrection then will come about the saying written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you read that and you kind of go, Paul, did you just take those verses out of context? Because in Hosea, it sounds like judgment, and here it sounds like victory. What's going on? That's the point. Here in Hosea, the prophet is saying, Hey, death, come along now. Where are your thorns? Hey, death, come. Where's your sting? It's time to do your work in judgment. But the work of Jesus is so radical. The work of Jesus is so mighty that he's actually taken that very thing now for the believer and reversed it. And so when Paul quotes that section of scripture, he is highlighting the reality that Jesus as the risen one has put death itself to death. Praise be to God. And so our self-sufficiency is overwhelmed by the gospel, by the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings about in his mighty work the death of death. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a young pastor fresh out of seminary. He was visiting a dying man in Washington, D.C. He'd never met the guy before. And sadly, there was a very, very aggressive form of bone cancer that was, that was really ravaging this guy's life. And so the pastor shared the gospel several times with him, but there was no response. But they did sort of become friends over, the, over that time. And so there was, a, there was this growing friendship, and there was a number of visits. And eventually, the pastor learned more about this guy. He was kind of this self-made man. Uh, he'd been raised in Spain. His father was killed by the Franco regime. And because of Spain's official kind of church-sponsored support of Franco, this young man turned his back on God and religion completely. And then he fled his country as a teenager. He came to America. He didn't know any English, but he worked hard. He studied hard. And eventually he went to college, and he, he, he became a doctor in psychiatry, and he kind of pursued these things. Even though he had all those disadvantages, he had to work hard to learn the language. He had to work hard to learn. But he had become very successful, very wealthy. He was actually the chairman of the department at one of the nation's most prestigious hospitals but then came cancer there was a few months that it, the malignancy destroyed essentially everything he had accomplished throughout his life it devastated his body he he once just kept in great condition by swimming all the time and and, and sadly his mind also began to deteriorate because of this disease and so finally, his, you know, his spirit was broken. His body was racked with pain. He, he ran out of pride, and he kind of stopped trying to make up his own answers. His self-sufficiency was being taken away, because he, he saw these answers weren't really answers. And so when the pastor next visited, in, in, in a very, very desperate tone, he said, Quote, I have treated depression my entire life, but I have no answers for what I'm going through. If your God really has some answers, please help me with the hell I'm experiencing now. Give me some peace if you can. And then the the young pastor replied, you know, you've gained everything a man could gain in every avenue of life. You have wealth, respect, intelligence, achievement, and these may well all have to be put aside for you to gain the thing you really want. You've succeeded in every sphere of life except the spiritual. And to succeed there, you must not follow any of the rules you've used before. You cannot conquer the spiritual world by your own efforts. You must first admit your helplessness and inability, confessing you've got nothing to stand on. To enter into God's kingdom and to know his peace, you must not come as self-sufficient, but instead you must come as a helpless child. The man stared at him but remained silent. The pastor prayed, but he he left. And a few days later, the cancer had progressed to the point where the man's leg broke spontaneously as he moved in bed. So the doctors decided to operate on him, and even though he was in such a weakened condition, so on the eve of the operation, unbeknownst to this guy's family, he wrote the pastor a little letter. It, It began with the Apostles' Creed in Spanish, and then the note continued in English with these words. Jesus, I hate all my sins. I have not served or worshiped you. Father, I know the only way to come into your kingdom is by the precious blood of Jesus. I know you stand at the door and will answer those who knock. I now want to be your lamb. Me with you. The man who wrote those words never regained consciousness. After that operation... He had learned Hosea's lesson for Israel that those who walk in self-sufficiency will never find life. The sovereign God of the universe chose to break him of his pride with this very, very difficult case of cancer. It was the worst thing that ever happened to him in his life. And yet in reality, it was the best. Why? Because Jesus... The risen king has conquered death. And he's in heaven now where Jesus is saying, I am with you forever. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take these words, apply them to our hearts, cause us to see, cause us to know Forgive us for embracing self sufficiency so easily. Thank you that the sting of death is removed because of the radical work of Jesus, the risen Messiah. We praise you in his name. Amen.